All right, once again, good morning, church. Uh, the children are dismissed for children's ministry. You can follow Miss Diane back in the corner there. She's waving. Children, you may be dismissed right now. As I mentioned earlier, Pastor Jason's not here this morning, but he should be back for tonight's service. So if you usually come on Sunday evenings, the service is on for tonight. If he gets stuck or like killed in traffic, uh, I, I'm, I told him I'd be willing to lead and, and open up the, the room just for some worship time and some testimonial time. So worst case scenario, he's not here, we're still meeting. Uh, but best case scenario, he's back and we'll be continuing through our series in Ezra uh, for tonight's service. That begins at 6 o'clock tonight. Also, I texted Jason this morning just to check up and see how the students are doing, how he's doing. I, I know from experience with, with doing a lot of youth retreats that um, Sundays can be the most exhausting days. They can be the most uh, exciting days as well. Uh, but he just said pray for safety and, and pray for continued unity and that the kids will just continue to grow uh, for their love of the Lord. So before I preach this morning, let me just open up in a word of prayer. Uh, but let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you, Lord, for this building and for this blessing of just being able to hold church in a nice, warm environment. Uh, Lord, I just pray that this service will glorify and honor you alone. I pray, Lord, that as I preach, I'm in tune with your spirit, and your spirit is speaking through me, that it's not my words. God, I pray that I get out of the way. I, I thank you, Lord, for the worship team this morning and, and for the blessing of worshiping you through, through praise and, and, and singing. So, God, I just pray that no matter what, your name is glorified here this morning. I pray for Pastor Jason and the New Hope Baptist Youth Group as they're away. I pray, Lord, that they have a safe travel home. I pray that traffic can be light. Uh, Father, I just pray that they can grow closer to each other as a youth group, but ultimately closer to you as their Lord and their Savior. So, Jesus, we just thank you so much for dying on the cross for us, and we thank you so much that we have this opportunity to just gather as believers and be encouraged by your word. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to start off, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming out this morning. Some of you might have not known that Jason wasn't going to be here, so you're stuck with me. But maybe some of you knew already, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess someone else is going to be preaching. Uh, so you're stuck with me for this morning. But a little bit about me. I've been here at New Village Church on staff for about five years as the, as the full-time youth and music minister and a few years ago, I met Pastor Jason, and we did a, a couple of VBSs together. And like he's always alluded to, those were such amazing times where uh, really it's not our strength, it's not our doing, but it's, it's God working through us. And those are some of my favorite me uh, memories more recently in ministry. Uh, but I, I went to school at Messiah College, or I think it's called Messiah University now, in Pennsylvania, and I did my four-year degree in youth ministry. So I just want to share a little story, and this relates to where I'm going with the sermon this morning, uh, but I, I want to ask you a question, all right, or start off with this. Have you ever thought in your life this phrase, whether you mumbled it under your breath, or you thought it in your head, or maybe you said it out loud, but have you ever thought this, this is beneath me, right, or, or maybe it could sound something like this, there's no way I'm ever going to do that, I'm way too important for that. Isn't there someone else who can do that? Well, don't bother me with this. So I can clearly remember one time when I was working at Camp Spofford. It was right after I graduated college. I had my four-year degree in youth ministry. And to be honest, I was full of, very, uh, I was full of pride and arrogance, and, and my ego was, was all the way up here because, I, well, look at me. I have my college degree. 
So my, my first job was at Camp Spofford in, in the wintertime, and it was a full-time gig. And um, I remember one of my first jobs I was told to do, they said, David, go clean those toilets. And I said, right, on the outside, I was like, okay. But inside, I was like, are you serious? I didn't drive all the way to New Hampshire to clean toilets. Don't you know who I am? Look at my degree. Youth ministry, look at it. It doesn't say cleaning toilets. It says youth ministry, right? And I had this selfish, this pride and this arrogance because I'm thinking here I am, a college graduate with this degree that proves my education, and you're asking me to do what? Clean toilets? And like I said, I, I wish I could say I was so joyful and, and, and I love serving, and I, I wish I could say my heart was in it. But to be honest, it wasn't, and I think the camp director knew that. And I want to get back to the story a little bit later because I'll, I'll share with you how God humbled my heart even more the next week at camp. But for now, I think if we're being honest, we've all felt this way in one way or another in our life. We hide behind phrases like this. Well, that's someone else's job. Let, let them do that. That's not on my job description. Why would you ask me to do that? Or I would never do that. That's beneath me. Don't, again, I'm too important for that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be reading a, a really well-known story of, of Jesus. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a little bit of context to John's gospel. The first 12 chapters, chapters 1 to 12 of John's gospel, we read all about Jesus Christ's public ministry. He makes all these outrageous claims. If you remember the book of John, what's unique about it is Jesus has these seven I am statements. He said about, I think, four or five of the seven. So he hasn't said them all yet, but within the first 12 chapters, Jesus makes these outrageous claims, and he does these incredible miracles. And we read that the nation of Israel as a whole, like I'm not talking individually, but as a whole, we see over and over again, they keep rejecting Jesus. Now, there are specific people here or there throughout Jesus' ministry who believe and receive him as the Christ, as the promised Messiah, but ultimately, the crowds keep rejecting him. Now, from chapters 13, and we're beginning at 13 this morning, to about 15, 16, 17, these chapters focus on Jesus' private ministry. We get an inside look at Jesus discipling and Jesus ministering to his disciples. And what's funny, or, or not funny, but unique about these several chapters is when you read them, Jesus says a lot of things, but it all takes place the day before he's crucified the night before his crucifixion. So if you're there, John chapter 13, we'll read verses 1 to 15 together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but wash also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done for you. So this morning, I want to focus just on the act of what Jesus did, him washing his disciples' feet. I don't want to go super deep into the, the, the theological points at the end where he's talking with Peter about bathing and being clean and washing. I don't want to focus too heavily into that this morning. That, that could be a whole different sermon for another time. But to, the, this morning, I just want to talk about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I don't know if you grabbed it on your way in, but there was a little half sheet of paper. If you have it, great. If not, if you want, you can raise your hand. But I have a few little fill-in-the-blank notes if, if it helps keep you, I guess, aware or awake this morning. Uh, but I'm going to be looking at three aspects of Jesus serving his disciples and washing their feet. And this is the three things we're going to look at. The first, we're going to see the humility of Jesus. The second, we'll see the love of Jesus. And the third, we'll see the example of Jesus. So humility, love, example. Point number one, the humility of Jesus. So throughout John's gospel, when you read it, you'll see this phrase repeated again and again. His hour had not yet come. Right? What we just read makes note, now it switches, that Jesus knew his hour had come. So all throughout his ministry, his hour has not yet come, which is meaning the cross is coming, but not yet. Now Jesus is saying he knew his hour was coming. It's the night before his crucifixion. It was his time to depart from this world and to suffer agony on the cross. Jesus knew in just a short few hours, the next day he was to be betrayed, abandoned, and rejected. Yet in verse 1, this is what we read, how he treated and how he loved his disciples. He says, he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Again, Jesus knowing what's coming to him, and he still decides to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus knows the cross is coming. The disciples are very unaware of it. And I think just knowing this and knowing that Jesus loves them despite how they're going to treat him in a few hours, I think it adds to even more of the humility that Jesus shows to his disciples. In verses 4 and 5, we see Jesus, all of a sudden he gets up from supper, he takes off his outer garment, and it says he, he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And if you don't understand the full context or really the other side of what's happening, it could seem pretty random, like why would Jesus just randomly get up and do this? Well, in Luke's gospel, he records that during the same Passover meal, he says, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded to be the greatest. This wasn't the only time that the disciples argued with each other about who's the greatest or who's the best in Jesus' eye or who gets the best reward. Right? If, if you want, you could turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. I'll give you a few moments to get there. But again, right now, the disciples are arguing in front of Jesus, right? Who's the greatest? No, I'm the greatest. No, 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 Peter, you're not, I'm the greatest. Come on, right? So they're arguing in front of Jesus. And this was a common thing that the disciples did. So Mark chapter 10, verse 35. I'm going to read a few verses. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Let me just pause there. That, that's a very blunt but 
It's a very powerful, prideful statement. Jesus, whatever we ask, we want you to do it to us or do it for us. Verse 36, and Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Now, right now, you might be saying, wow, that's a very, like, gracious thing, or that's a very powerful thing that James and John are asking Jesus for this, these high seats of glory, being on his right and his left hand in heaven, seated in these, these powerful honor seats. But then we get to verse number 41. It says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. You, whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, James and John, in front of the other ten disciples, are saying to Jesus, Jesus, we want you to give us the best seats. We want the highest seat of honor being right next to you. And then it says the other ten who were there became indignant. And this word, it can simply just mean they were angry, they were frustrated, they were annoyed from this unfair question, this unfair treatment that James and John were asking Jesus of. And if you notice the theme of servanthood and humility that Jesus uses in these last two verses here, he says, whoever is to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Jesus ends with, with really his mission, which he keeps repeating over and over again throughout the Gospels. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the picture, right? It's the, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. They're having their last supper, and Jesus is seeing his disciples arguing. He's seeing and, and hearing the pride and the arrogance leave their mouth. He's, he's seeing the, the pride that's filling their heart, the egos I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the best. No, no, who's, I'm the best. Come on, you serious? And Jesus sees that, and he also notices something. He notices their dirty feet. So what Jesus does is he shows them what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. He takes off his outer garments, he grabs a towel, he grabs water, and he begins to wash their feet. And I just want to pause for a second here. If you're not sure, really, the extent of what feet washing was in Jesus' day, Right, you might read this and say, oh, that's gross. Feet are, are dirty. They're smelly. Right, I don't want to touch someone's feet. Like, oh, not, I don't want to do that. Right, and, and funny enough, like, that was sort of the culture in Jesus' day as well. And I'll explain. In Jesus' day, feet washing was a job that was reserved for slaves. The people wore sandals, and because of the dirt roads and the dust from the roads, their feet were often dirty the moment they stepped outside. They could bathe the whole day. They could shower. They could be clean in their house. But the moment they stepped foot outside, they were dirty. Their feet were disgusting. Now, it was a custom to have a bowl and water and a towel for a guest to go and to wash their own feet. So if I was to invite you over for dinner in Jesus' day, I'd set up a station where you can wash your own feet. Very similar to like, hey, can you go wash your hands before dinner? Right? You might not say that to a guest because that's, I don't know, that might be a little rude. But you'll say it to your kids or, or to your family members. right? But in Jesus' day, 
it was custom to wash your feet before a meal. Because if you know anything about how they ate, they had these low tables that were low to the ground, and they'd often lean on their side, and they'd lay down and eat. And eating was also a, a, a social thing as well. They'd have conversation. So they'd be low to the ground. They'd be near each other's feet. So washing your feet before a meal was sort of the, the custom, the standard that you'd practice in Jesus' day. And I was doing some more research on this, and interestingly enough, if you were a Jewish person and you had a Jewish slave, it wasn't expected for that Jewish slave to wash another Jew's feet. Right? Washing feet was even too beneath the Jewish slave. So washing feet for a slave was, re- was reserved for the lowest of the low, the Gentile slaves. So again, imagine, again, the disciples' reaction when they see Jesus, their Messiah, the Christ, stepping down, kneeling, and washing their feet. The students were expected to serve their rabbis, but in, in, their, in the Jewish culture, the rabbis were never expected to serve their students. Jesus used this as an opportunity to teach his disciples about humility and to show them the foolishness and the selfishness of their hearts. Instead of someone offering to wash each other's feet, they went through supper with Jesus with dirty feet. And more importantly, we can see no one offered to wash Jesus' feet. So the disciples are sitting around and they're arguing who's the greatest, and they have to notice that, hey, we haven't washed our feet yet, and no one's offering to wash my feet. And no one offered to wash Jesus' feet. I thought, I thought that was interesting. Right? They, they know who Jesus is, yet they, they still are like, no, we're not even going to wash your feet, Jesus. Right? So they're going, through dirt, uh, they're going through this supper with dirty feet. Their pride and their ego are getting in the way of their serving. So again, number one, we see the humility of Jesus when he stoops down and he, and he kneels down to wash his disciples' feet. He's taking the job of the lowest slave in society. The second thing we see from the story is we see the love of Jesus. In verses 6 to 8, we read this. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So as Jesus begins washing his disciples' feet, he gets to Peter. And I love Peter when we read through the Gospels. If we're being honest, I think Peter is how most of us would react in our head. But the only difference is Peter actually does what he's thinking. He often does and acts before he thinks, or he speaks before he thinks. He's very, very brash. He's very bold. He's very blunt. He's very direct. As Jesus is washing their feet, he gets to Peter, and I think Peter is really saying what all the other disciples are thinking. They're just in awe. They're shocked. I, I think they're humiliated by the fact that Jesus is washing their feet. Again, Peter understands that Jesus has no business being down, down there taking the role of the lowest slave. He's the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus replies to Peter with some pretty harsh words. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And then I love Peter's response. First he goes from, Jesus, don't, don't ever touch my feet. Like, it's not worth it. Don't do it. And then he says, well, not only my feet, but wash my hands, wash my head, wash, wash my whole body. I want to be with you. I want to have my share with you, Jesus. And I think one thing, right, and I'll, I'll sort of step away from Scripture for a second. As I'm reading this, and, and as we read it as Christians, we know the cross is coming. 
The disciples don't know. Jesus knows the cross is coming. But, but we as the readers, we, we know the cross is coming. And I think that Jesus might be alluding to here is the coming of his death on the cross. Right? The text doesn't really say that, but I think it's within bounds to assume or, or to say, hey, we can read this in the lens of Jesus knowing he's dying on the cross pretty soon. Funny enough, if you fill in Peter's response with Jesus' death on the cross, it fits perfectly. And what I mean for that is instead of, Je- instead of Peter saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? If you replace that with Jesus, you're going to die for me? Right? Or, or the next thing that Peter says, he says, you're never, you'll never wash my feet. Replace that with Jesus, you'll never die for me. It's funny how, how it works when you fill in the blank that way. Jesus always knew the cross was coming. I had Matt a few moments ago read Philippians chapter 2. And it's one of my favorite verses, and it shows the humility of Jesus. So I'll read it again, but Paul writes this in Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Just as washing feet was reserved for the lowest of the low in Jesus' day, being put to death on the cross was one of the most humiliating painful and public ways of being murdered as a criminal or the death penalty as a criminal. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking our sin and our shame, the punishment that was reserved for us, he took, he bore it, all because of his love for us. There's nothing that we can do to please God. We can't be good enough on our own without Jesus to impress God. Again, we see the cross. It shows Jesus' love. It's freely given to us, all because of his amazing grace. As we sang earlier this morning, this is amazing grace. We have forgiveness for our sins. We have reconciliation, all because of Jesus' love and Jesus' death on the cross, not anything that we could do. Now, getting back to John chapter 13, there's another thing that we can infer just based on the text. There's a good chance that Jesus washed even Judas Iscariot's feet. Jesus knew his betrayer, right, in the first couple of verses. He knew that the devil was already in the heart of Judas. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. Yet, it doesn't say he didn't wash his feet, but I can assume that he did wash his feet. It reminds me earlier in Jesus' ministry when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Now, I told the youth group this a few weeks ago. We don't pray for our enemies to face like the, the smite of God, the judgment of God, but we pray for our enemies that their heart can be transformed. And instead of calling them our enemy, we can call them our brother or our sister in the Lord. So we see here Jesus practicing what he preached. He showed love, his love, by washing his enemies' feet. And even when Jesus was on the cross being crucified in all his agony, he cries this to God about his accusers. He says, Father, forgive them. When Jesus is on the cross, he doesn't say, Father, give them what's coming to them. How could they do this to me? He says, Father, forgive them. And I read that, and these two things, I see these powerful example of Jesus' love. We see Jesus Christ's perfect love displayed while he died on the cross on our behalf. So again, we see the humility of Jesus. We see the love of Jesus. And the third thing from this text, we see the example of Jesus. So John chapter 13, let's read verse 14 and 15 again. This is what Jesus says. You call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. And I think for the disciples, I think they needed to see Jesus' humility and Jesus' love in action. They knew about it. They were with Jesus all the time. They heard him preaching and preaching and telling people about it all the time. But I think they needed to see it done. Rather than competing with each other and, and trying to, to say, I'm the greatest, no, I am, right? instead of that selfish attitude, Jesus gives them this command and says, what I have done for you, do likewise for each other. And I want to get back to my story that I, I shared in the beginning here. When I was at camp, the first week I was told to clean toilets, and I was like, yeah, I'll clean them. And then in my mind, I'm like, how could they do this? Or what? Like, Don't they know who I am? I'm so important. It's funny because I think I didn't do a good job hiding it, or maybe God just has this great sense of humor. The next week, I was told to, guess what? Clean more toilets and clean a whole building of toilets, but not by myself, who offered to help me, but the camp director. The guy who's at the top of the, to- of the pole here of responsibilities, the, my boss, is with me cleaning toilets. And for me, I get to see my boss humbly, joyfully, and lovingly serve the camp and stoop down and and wash toilets, right? And here I am, I'm like, if he can do it and he's enjoying it, then who am I? I'm down here on the the totem pole of of, of responsibilities. I'm actually, I'm an intern, right? That, That is part of my job, to do whatever the boss of the camp tells me to do. But here he is, leading by example, showing humility, showing love, showing joy in serving. And I think God used that to convict my heart, right? Here's my boss. Here's someone I value highly. And he can do this job that I'm saying I'm too proud for, that I'm too good for. Shame on me. And just another quick story about camp. The very first summer I went there, the summer when I met my wife Stephanie, um, the first few weeks of camp are all about staff training. You learn how to do your job. You learn who you, like each other are. You learn your names. You, you learn your responsibilities. And then about the third or fourth week is when the guests actually arrive at camp, and, and you should be prepared enough to serve them. So this is about two weeks in, and it's the night before guests arrive, and we were told that there's an all-staff worship service at the chapel. Uh, and it's mandatory, so we all had to go there. So as we're going there, they say, you know, instead of going through the front doors, go around the back. So we go around the back of the chapel, and when I open the door, I'll never forget it, because I was just like, (gasps) what? Uh, There were all the upper staff, all the full-time staff adults, including the camp director, the office manager, the director of the adult ministries there at the camp, the director of of the counselors at camp. They were leaning on their knee with a towel and a bucket of water, and I said, what is going on? Are they seriously going to wash my feet right now? Something about camp is there are dirt roads, and we would often wear flip-flops or slides because it's really hot and, and it's summertime. So you could shower in the morning, just like what I mentioned before. You could shower and scrub your feet, and then within like five minutes I look down, I'm like, how are my feet blackened with dirt? I just showered five minutes ago. This is at the end of the day, right? And in my mind, I'm like, are they seriously going to wash my feet? Are my toenails too long? Did I cut them? Is, are they black? Like, what is going on? I'm wearing slides right now. Did I shower today? Right, that's all going through my mind. But at the same time, I was humbled by this. Right? It was one of the most humbling or humiliating times of my life, in a good way, not like out of embarrassment, but I was humbled by it. You would think that as someone who's washing feet, that you might feel humility or be humbled by that, but I think all the more receiving a foot washing, right? I think it puts you in your place and you're like, whoa, 
this is this is weird, right? We don't do this nowadays at, at churches or in ministries. This is something that that is very unique and back in Jesus's time. But again, here are the 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 high end um, council or the high end staffers at the camp, right? The the boss, the camp directors are washing the staff. And I was a counselor, and I'm like, who am I that you're washing my feet? And I think like how I felt, the disciples were probably thinking the same thing. If Jesus, my Savior, could wash my feet, then who am I to be so proud as to not wash my brother's feet? I should be washing my brother's feet. A little later in this chapter, John records Jesus saying this in verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new command I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So as Christians, we're commanded by Jesus to live as Jesus lived. Our love for others should serve as evidence that we follow Christ. And Jesus, who loved others perfectly by dying on the cross for them, that should serve as an example for us as Christians to follow we should be mimicking and reflecting Jesus in all areas of our life. And in the, the past four or five months, we've been going through the book of James in the youth group. James is written by Jesus Christ's half-brother, and he, he steals a lot or borrows a lot from Jesus' preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He also borrows a lot from the book of Proverbs. And James is a very convicting book because he's saying, if you claim to be a Christian, if you say you follow Jesus, he challenges and says, what's the evidence that your life is backing that up? What, what is your faith looking like? You can't, anybody can say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but if we're not known by our love for one another, if we're not known for serving one another, James says, I don't think you have an alive, active faith. Your faith is most likely dead based on how you treat other people. So like that, it's been encouraging and convicting to read the book of James because, again, as Christians, we're called to reflect Jesus' life. We're called to mimic him in all areas the best that we can. So while looking at this, right, the three things, we see the humility of Jesus, we see the love of Jesus, we see the example of Jesus. And as I wrap up in a few minutes here, I want to transition to just three applications that we can glean or that we can take away as Christians, as a church, about serving one another based on the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. If you have your notes, the first blank is we're to have a heart for serving others. Have a heart for serving others. Again, Jesus cares more about your heart rather than what you do. If you remember what he said to the Pharisees, he said, these people honor me or they worship me with their lips. Right? They, they give lip praise to Jesus, to God, yet their heart is far from him. In that same story, right? I'm like, yeah, I'll clean those toilets. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, my pleasure. And inside, I'm like, how could they do this to me? Don't they know who I am? I'm David Moore. I have a college degree. How dare they? Right? Jesus cares more about our hearts than anything else. We can live our lives doing these great things for Christ outwardly, but inwardly, if we're complaining the whole time, it's not pleasing to Christ. We should serve one another with an attitude that says this, nothing is beneath me because I have a Savior who humbled himself in human form Becoming creation, or the creator lived and became amongst the creation, and he died on the cross for my sins. If the God of the universe can humble himself and show us love and serve us with a joyful heart, then as Christians, we should be doing that for one another. 
Again, we're to have a heart for serving others. The second is we're to serve others with proper motives. Proper motives. Again, Matt read this in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, as Christians, we should have this attitude. We should serve with no expectation of payback. I shouldn't have this mentality of, oh, well, I did this for you last year, so now you owe me this this year. Remember when I did that favor for you last week? Remember when I helped you move out of your house, you know, a few weeks ago, and and I bought you breakfast maybe? Well, now return the favor. That's not the proper motive for serving. We, We shouldn't be serving to expect payback. And we also shouldn't be serving to expect any type of praise or reward. But rather, we should be serving because we want to. Serving because we want to love and we want to serve others as Christ served us. And I love the, the TV show The Office. I haven't seen it in, in a few years. But I remember a clip, and there's this character named Dwight. And it's, it's later in the series. And Dwight comes into the office. They're in Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania. He comes in with these authentic, fresh New York bagels. And he's giving them to all the other employees. He's like, here, you want a bagel? Fresh New York bagel. Here you go, here you go. And they're like, thank you, Dwight. Thanks so much. And under his breath, he's mumbling, you're welcome. You owe me one. Because later in, the, in, that, in that episode, he's trying to get someone fired. And he's trying to get all the other coworkers to owe him a favor so that they could fire him. And then so Dwight goes to all the coworkers. He gets the one guy in particular. His name's Andy. And he gives Andy a bagel. And then the camera cuts to Andy in this interview. And Andy says, I was raised that if you do something for me, boom, I pay you back immediately. Or if you open the door for me, guess what? I open the door back for you. So the whole episode for the next five minutes, it's, it's Dwight doing something nice for, for Andy, and then Andy does something nice for Dwight, and it's messing up Dwight's plan because he wants that IOU, but Andy feels guilty because he's not paying back what he, what he was served with. So the whole episode is them going back and forth, back and forth, and it, it, it's pretty funny, but it's, it's about five minutes long, and they do some pretty crazy things. But as Christians, that's not how we should be serving each other. We don't expect the IOU. We don't expect payback. We don't even expect the praise. We love others. Here's the proper motive. We love others because we love Jesus and we are obeying Jesus. That's our motive for serving. And it really got me thinking, right, what would our church, right, what would church, what would we look like if everybody here, including myself, right, what if all of us served each other this way? What would our church look like? I I guarantee it would be the most loving place in the world. You'd want to be here. You'd enjoy being here. And I'll also say this, husbands or wives, what would your household look like if you treated your spouses this way? If you served them with humility, not the, the, well, guess what, honey, I did the dishes, so uh, listen, if you could do my laundry later, that'll be great, right? We, We shouldn't serve each other based on that expectation of payback, but we should serve each other, and the motive is love. The motive is is remembering what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, that perfect and ultimate example of love. And that leads to the last point here, the last application. We're to remember Christ's ultimate example of humility. It's pretty funny, as as I'm studying the Passover and Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus Christ dies on the cross as the sacrificial lamb slaughtered for our sins the same time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered for the Jewish people in Jesus' day. So again, and we read that Jesus chose to give up his life. He wasn't murdered by the Romans. Well, he was, but in a sense. But it says he freely gave up his spirit. 
No one took his life from him. He, his spirit, he, he chose to die. He chose when to die on the cross. No one took it from him. Again, Jesus chose the cross. He wasn't forced to do it. He wasn't coerced. It wasn't a trick. He chose to show his love that way. In 1 John 3.16, this is what we read. This is what we know love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And this is just my belief, but as a Christian, my opinion is that the deeper we know God, the more intimate we know God on that level, the easier it's going to become for us to love and serve others. If we don't understand the cross, if we don't understand the nature of Jesus being the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, him dying on the cross, it's going to be hard to serve because we're not going to understand that connection. But as Christians, the deeper we grow in our love for Jesus, our love for God, he's going to transform our heart to become like him, that we want to love and serve others in that same way. And I'm not trying to speak at anybody or speak at anything, but if you have a hard time serving others, if you have a hard time being humble, showing humility, showing love to others, it might be because your relationship with Jesus is shallow. You might know a lot about him, but you might not know him. And this morning, my, my challenge is for the church, for us as Christians, as believers, is to grow in our relationship with Jesus, understand the extent of him washing his disciples' feet, understand what he did on the cross, and let that be our fuel for serving and for loving others. Let me pray. Jesus, we just come before you as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and, and I just pray, Lord, that you forgive any of us if we've been uh, just having a hard heart towards serving others and loving others. Lord, I pray that we can work on our relationship with you, that we can grow in our love and our faith and our devotion to you, and that that will be our fuel for loving and serving others. God, I pray for New Village Church and for New Hope Baptist Church and for everything that's going on down the future. Lord, I pray that these churches, that this church here this morning, that we'll be known for serving each other, that we'll be known for loving each other. I pray, Lord, again, that even in our households, that we can be humbled by your word and humbled by you washing your disciples' feet, humbled by you dying on the cross for our sins, that we can serve our spouses, serve our, serve our children, in such a way that honors and glorifies you. And God, I just pray that if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, who maybe just knows a lot about you, but they don't know you, Father, I pray that you stir their heart, that they can cry out and understand that they can't be good enough to win or deserve your grace or love, but it was freely given by Jesus Christ because of his love for us. So God, I just pray if there's anybody here this morning that's feeling that way, that they have boldness to ask me or ask an elder and ask us questions about who you are, Jesus. And I just pray, Lord, that ultimately we can point them to you. And uh, Father, I pray that as we leave this building here this morning, that our hearts can be transformed, that we won't just forget everything that your word says, but rather we can leave here transformed and leave here serving others the same way that you have served and loved us. We love you, and in your holy, precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.